Welcome to the Engineering Career Conversations. I'm Krista Downey, Director of the Engineering Career Center at Cornell University. And I'm Tracy Nathans-Kelly, Director of the Engineering Communications Program. We are excited to bring you this forum where we will host lively conversations that we hope will inspire you. Welcome. We are here today with Abena Ojotayo, who is a Cornell graduate with a bachelor's degree in civil engineering and a focus on sustainability and infrastructure, a master's degree in engineering management, and she's now a local government executive in Tallahassee, Florida. Her work is at the intersection of sustainability, equity, and community building, and we are eager to hear more. Thank you so much for having me, Krista. It's a pleasure. Well, I get to start today's question. We wanted to know currently, because we were very intrigued about the crossover that you've experienced in your career, um, what you're doing at your current work and how it relates to the degrees that you got at Cornell. Well, I never would have imagined it. If you told me I would be here years ago, I probably wouldn't believe you. Um, I work in local government, as Krista mentioned, and um, I'm an assistant city manager currently and previously a director, but I started in local government as the chief resilience officer, which is uh, more familiar to me as a chief resilience officer uh, for a city. You are working with the leadership, multiple stakeholders, both internal to the organization and in the broader community to develop a strategy for how the community will deal with disruption, uh, with shocks and stressors. Um, and everything from root causes for those disruptions and uh, future mitigation or adaptation to what the new normal will be. And that's a relatively new field, uh, the chief resilience officer, but it is the close cousin of uh, sustainability officers, sustainability managers. Um, and that's some of the work that I did. I've always been interested in that work as an engineer. And so I've sort of meandered through multiple sectors, but still kind of weaving through this idea of how do we take care of what we have right now? How do we um, behave and live as good stewards of our resources while also looking to the future um, concerning what might be coming down the line that could shake up everything that we know? A lot of that uh, in sustainability work centers around the natural environment and climate climate change, climate adaptation, and climate mitigation. So resilience sort of along that line of thinking focuses more on that disruption, the disaster part of it and, and how um, imminent it may be. And it informs or tries to inform how we organize ourselves, how we build cities, how we develop programs, how we address um, systemic issues so that we can really be better prepared for the future and then more, all the people in our communities can thrive. So that's sort of how we weave together sustainability, equity, and community in this work. And um, like I said, I've always been really interested in it. That's what led me to engineering, this idea of building better communities. Um, and that's what led me specifically to civil engineering, um, because that's, I think, out of all the fields, the one that really gets you into the building of society um, at a scale that you can observe, you know, in the day-to-day -day life. That was very, very attractive to me from a, a long, uh, long time, early age. And uh, Cornell nurtured that 
allowed me to get into unlikely paths, I think, um, with some independent studies and bringing together pieces that didn't always connect. And I think that set me up for the kind of work I'm doing now, which doesn't always connect, but I make it connect (laughs) whenever I need to. Um, So that's sort of the short end of it. I think we could probably dig into it a little bit more before I keep rambling. I love it. So what does that look like on a daily or weekly or monthly basis? What are the things that are on your to-do list or what are the projects you've worked on recently? So let me say on the resilience uh, officer role, which I no longer wear that hat exclusively, but is still very much part of my work. Um, it began a lot from thinking about worst case scenarios and sort of doomsday predictions. And as much as that sounds depressing, I found that to be really uh, an important place to begin. I always say it's helpful for everyone to appreciate the good news once you understand the bad. And that's sort of a a compass for me as a Christian as well, that, you know, the gospel means good news and good news is not really good news unless you know why your circumstances are bad or what's really horrible about this world. And so understanding even in, in climate adaptation work, understanding what is the worst case scenario often can ground us into, you know, knowing that that's not what we want. If we can all agree on that, um, it, it have, helps us to ask questions about who's vulnerable who's most vulnerable and at risk and shift our gaze towards them. And then it sort of inspires us to get to work. Um, There's something about the urgency of a crisis that really spurs us on and that really brings people together in in new ways. So I find that it's a helpful place to operate out of thinking about worst case scenarios, thinking about doomsday, thinking about who is at risk and then work out of that, you know, let the creativity lead us to lead us to good solutions. Um, but it's also very hopeful for me. Um, it is very much a work of uh, hope in our ability to build better communities, better um, context for multiple people from all walks of life to strive, to be able to thrive. That's the kind of hope that you need for this work. And I think even as engineers, you have to approach every problem with the expectation that there is a solution. And we don't really enjoy impossible things. That's probably like the applied physics, you know, folks, they just kind of, <laughs> I never understood that major. <laughs> but with engineering, I always felt like there was the answer, right? There's a solution and, and at least you could design it. And so that's a very hopeful place for me to work and operate out of. So on a day-to-day, my work can range from uh, working with multiple departments to develop our clean energy future. Our city right now is transitioning to 100% net renewable energy. And so building the pieces uh, or planning the pieces for our utility uh, in uh, conversion and transition is a big part. Our city operates our own utility, electric utility, our gas and our water and wastewater, all of those pieces. So we, we actually have everything in house to be able to make a bold declaration like that and actually do it. And converting all of our fleet to um, electric. We've set that target for our mass transit system, as well as all of the fleet uh, for the city government. And that's also within our power and our ability. So real time working through something like that. But it could also be facilitating a mental health crisis response unit, because part of the work we uh, did with the resilience planning is led us to adverse um, community experiences, adverse childhood experiences as root causes of the kind of trauma that gets worse over time and that uh, lead to these huge disruptions in public safety. 
And so that was clearly another element that we knew we had to work on and um, address it creatively, you know, with social workers, with law enforcement, with human service providers, altogether responding to a 911 emergency. And so it's just the why gamut. And I love it because it's never really uh, the same. There are a lot of unlikely partners that I get to work with, which is really encouraging. Um, but my role as an executive is to bring the teams together to uh, lead with the strategic planning and to identify and, and secure resources to empower them to do the work. Um, that's really, it's a blessing. I mean, I get to do that. We get to think of crazy ideas and, um, you know, see the shocked faces when we say, yep, this is what we're going to do. And then come alongside them and say, yes, we're going to, you know, find the resources. We're going to do it. It's going to take us some time, but we're going to get into the, into the meaty part of this work. And it's incredibly rewarding. I'm so fascinated by this, this intersection that you're at. Um, in the past, I've worked with the UN disaster management folks, but I so appreciate that arc over to resilience planning versus disaster management. <laughs> I know both mm. of them have to be there, right? But I, I appreciate your framing of, or reframing, right? Mm. The, the resilience planning and then what you're doing now, bringing in as an engineer, part of the problem is mental health in our communities. It's a, it's a stunning yeah. connection and I, I appreciate so much that that wider lens that you're talking about with bringing all yeah. those teams together. Yeah, I've been really encouraged by even our, our federal and state government sort of um, waking up to the need for mitigation and, um, you know, addressing issues before it becomes a crisis. We've spent a lot of energy and resources on emergency response and uh, it's costly not just in lives and property, but in time. And uh, I know that several years ago, FEMA published their study and their findings that for every dollar we spend on mitigation, we actually save six in, um, in emergency response and recovery. And so it just makes economic sense to do the work beforehand, but also to look ahead as to what the communities rather than to wait for a disaster. With that said, though, like I, I mentioned earlier, disasters unleash a creativity that really is required to match the severity of the situation. And so I think as our community has faced multiple crises and shocks, whether it's from racial unrest, you know, unjust policing systems, hurricanes, you know, our community has experienced a category five hurricane that they've just never seen before. All of that sort of causes you to think, OK, what else can we do? What is what what thing have we not? seen or thought about before and widens the lens, Tracy, as you mentioned, so that we can't move forward with business as usual anymore. And that, that's that's a gift to us. Your your framing is always just so generous. Right? <laughs> I, I, I absolutely love that. And I appreciate everything that you've got there in that regard. Oh my gosh, I, I also am just so inspired by this work. These are such important issues, and I love that the city is working on this. I'm so curious. Do you know, is this common across the country? Are there positions like this? Um, yeah. It's not as common as we mm -hmm. would like. So um, chief resilience officers began at trending, I would say, maybe five years ago, five, six years ago. And it, it was encouraged by several large philanthropic groups like the Rockefeller mm -hmm. Foundation that sort of um, incentivized it. 
But even then, it was about 100 across the entire world. I mean, we're talking thousands of cities, right? So this is not bread and butter type of work. Um, So our city took a leap uh, early on to create this position. And it really came at the heels of experiencing uh, a relatively devastating hurricane for us. And it was barely a category one, guys. We were... I say that in Florida because like, you know, yeah, bring it on category four. (laughs) We're out there barbecuing, but a category one and it it took us out. And there are some unique factors um, in our community that made it particularly devastating. Um, One is that we hadn't experienced a strong tropical storm like that in probably 20, almost 30 years. And so our emergency response in that area was just really weak and dusty. We also have a huge urban forest, which is our pride. We are Tree City, USA, multiple years. And so we love our urban canopy, but our our utility is also above ground, um, about 50%. And so when a wind blows or a squirrel goes across the line, it, you know, we have a power outage. And so that category storm one, our category one storm really took out a significant chunk of our electric infrastructure and it took a long time to be to be restored. People were just reeling, they were upset and we knew we had to do something. But rather than just reactively sort of rebuild better as we like to do after or rebuild again after a disaster, they said, well, let's let's kind of think about this a little bit. Let's be comprehensive. We've also had public safety as a number one concern for many years. Our law enforcement is actually Uh, quite advanced and award-winning in their community-oriented policing. Um, And so when public safety issues sort of started bubbling up and becoming a national issue, um, our community was yet again under pressure to make sure we rise to the occasion. And so a lot of conversations were intermingled. And that's just how it is at at a local level and at a community level. It's hard to talk about any one issue in isolation. Everything just sort of bleeds together. So in my work, I realized early on, I, I could not talk about just one thing, you know, before we, we got to the heart of the matter of uh, building hardening and climate adaptation. We had to deal with people's present day crises of poverty, persistent poverty, um, of housing and affordability. All those things are real crises, real disasters every day for people. And if they can't weather that, how much more can they weather you know, something that's 20, 30 years in their minds away. So that's what led to that. And I think more communities, more cities are are faced with that and they're reckoning with that. And so I hear way more than I used to about communities doing resilience planning, similar to doing climate um, adaptation plans or even sustainability plans. Like that was some of the work I did when I was working at Cornell. Universities have really been a leader in that space, but now Um, I think the clear leaders are in in local government because they are the government closest to the people. We could talk about it at a meta level, you know, at the federal level, but the rubber meets the road in your neighborhood, in your streets, you know, and, and local government has really stepped up to the plate to meet the needs. And it's less contentious than you would imagine um, at the local level. I mean, people just, you know, each other, first of all, you know, we're going to the grocery store together. You know how I feel about you. But also the effects of what's happening is tangible. We can we can just point to it. We can look to it. We can talk about it in real terms, not just in some philosophical what's happening at sea level rise in Miami. It's what's happening when a storm comes through Tallahassee 
and how do we feel about what the response and the preparation is for that totally different um, starting point and uh, a kind of a different mood when you start talking about it at the local level. Um, so it's becoming more and more common, luckily, and I think communities are demanding a lot more from local governments. And that is spurring local government to rise to the occasion as they always have to to kind of innovate. Yes. I'm curious about the innovations around housing and poverty and, you know, taking care of the city's most vulnerable, those equity issues and how that intersects with your work. Can you give us an example? Yeah, sure. Um, so so I would say that the sort of game changer ideas that came out of our resilience planning effort was around adverse childhood experiences and trauma-informed care, um, affordable housing, um, public safety um, as it relates to shock events in, in communities and sort of how they bounce back from that. And of course, the climate adaptation related to um, weather disasters. But affordable housing rose to the top because it, it is a chronic stressor. It has just been something that is slowly eroding away um, sort of the fabric of, of neighborhoods, of communities, of individual households. When so much of someone's income is spent just maintaining a roof over their heads, it leaves very little room for anything else. But also it's a problem that's been decades in the making across the country. I mean, every community is having this issue where we just have not as a community, as a, uh, a country built enough units, not enough units that are affordable to working uh, households. So the inventory is desperately low and incomes have been stagnant or not rising to the same level as um, inflation and other expenses happening. So it, it was just a perfect storm. In our community, a lot of that conversation, uh, because the, our local government actually is very involved in so many different service areas, there's a lot of looking to our local government for solutions. But it is so complex. It requires so many partners. And so the innovation that we've tried. So after I did the resilience plan um, and, and these issues sort of bubbled up, I, I was like, OK, I was told, hey, you go work on that. Um, and so went from doing uh, resilience planning to directing the sustainability department, taking on code enforcement, um, which is actually one of the original functions of local government, um, which is focused on um, the built environment and how we preserve it through codes, hazard mitigation, um, et cetera. I would not have expected it, but once I got it, I was like, oh, this is perfect. And <laughs> changed all my code enforcement officers to be resilience officers uh, to really shift their perspective, not just in policing people's sort of small issues on their property, but really think about it as a tool for hazard mitigation and community revitalization. But that got us into this affordable housing issue, right? People that are aging in place that can't afford to continue to preserve their units or people who can't afford better. And so they're living in really slum conditions um, or just the mix of units not being diverse enough to meet the various kinds of families. So we, in our region, we have multi-family rentals and then we have single family homes and not really much in between. Mm -hmm. And that's part of the challenge because our community is so diverse. We have families. You got elderly folks that just need an accessory dwelling unit. You, you have young professionals that have kids but want a townhome. Um, so we knew one innovation we needed to push is more missing middle housing. 
just to increase the diversity of options and um, to make better use of the land that we do have to add density where it makes sense, but to do it at a scale that honors existing neighborhoods rather than a harsh, you know, 15 story apartment right next door to um, a single family home. So we've been looking at that. We've been exploring those. We've been, we've actually done some work where we invited architects to give us sample designs and take it all the way to a permit ready document to make it easy for developers to enter into that work. Um, A lot of revolving loans that we give to small developers so that locally they can participate in that revitalization and we can keep some of the financing local. And then also leveraging as much as we can. We found that, you know, a local government can't afford to build multiple units. That's not really our functional area. We have a housing authority that does public housing, um, but the majority of new construction is done by private developers. And so we've had to be creative with leveraging some of our resources to meet them, to incentivize certain types of units while they're building whatever else they want to do. We've uh, implemented something called the inclusionary housing an ordinance that requires that every developer pass a certain number of units, reserve a portion of their units for to be affordable for low-income families. And in exchange, we have some development incentives, some permitting and land use flexibilities that we grant them, which is really uh, important for developers. So there are some unique ways that local government can intervene or in, in, uh, incentivize uh, that's far beyond just you know, actually constructing the units themselves. We found that the development services, the incentives, the zoning, those things, the regulatory aspects that are within our control really can help developers overcome many barriers and encourage. And so we went from, just to give you an example of the success over the last two years, we had probably in the 50 years prior, maybe 4,600 uh, 5,000 units that are certified as affordable housing income constrained in our entire inventory. It's abysmally low, right? Uh, but in the last two years, just putting together a mix of strategies and being really focused on this issue and calling out for more partners to come along with us, we've added 2,300 units that are in the development pipeline. And that's more than we've ever had in the past 25 years, right, combined. Because we just, like I said, we're not building units. We're not not incentivizing it. We're not pushing for it. Um, And so we found a lot of success there. We have to keep pushing because we're so far behind. There's still a lot of work to do. Wow. (laughs) I really appreciate, uh, again, just everything that you're saying that comes together. This is not just civil engineering, build a bridge, build a build a high rise of some sort, right? Right. That the entirety of the vision that you have there. And I was really intrigued. We were going to ask you about your, your most important collaborators and, and the grand challenges for the future, but you've already kind of outlined those for us. As you were doing that, I became really interested in how you at the head of all of this are managing all of these very different teams to come together towards this vision. Uh, so as a, as an engineer, right, we often work in the, in the team. So I would love just to hear your perspective about how to manage all these moving parts and all mm-hmm. these different teams. That's a great question. So I, I do think it begins with some kind of uh, grounding or moral compass for the leader to just sort of know which way is north and to be fully convinced of that in order to 
bring along other people. For me, that is my faith. It is my belief that we we live in a world that has been lovingly created by a generous, you know, um, God who has charged us to be good stewards of it, but also to love our neighbor as ourselves, which means I got to go out of my way to find ways to help them thrive. Um, so I find it really a privilege in the work that I do is every, every day I'm like, oh, I get to do this. Um, because it's not something that I think everyone is is lucky enough to be engaged in. And I, I need to bring that enthusiasm to my teams, because if we don't have that, <laughs> we are easily burnt out with this sort of doomsday hopeless outlook. So I think that's the number one beginning point for me. But I think also calling people to a task is incredibly powerful. Y'all didn't know you were going to church, <laughs> right? But that's a leadership lesson I learned from Jesus. I mean, he just, he calls you, he looks at you and he says, I want you to be part of this ridiculous plan. When I finished my master's, I saw, I got an email from somebody that um, there's a millionaire in Nigeria. He's from the tech world. And he's just constantly done this work in his community and they have entrusted him with building a, a city in East Nigeria. And you know, I'm thinking this is a scam, right? <laughs> and part of me said, this is intriguing. How many people are building a new city from scratch? And at that time, I was single, unattached. Well, I was I was in a relationship with my now husband, but, you know, no kids, just graduated. I thought this is the best time, if any, to take a wild adventure uh, back in Nigeria. And it was just as wild as it was. I mean, this guy was like, yep. They've given me all this land in the community. They want a new city. They preferably New York style, right? And I'm like, no, we're not doing that. This is a flood blown agricultural community in East Nigeria, but we could come up with something really creative. And we just worked at it. It was three of us that he called and said, I want you, you, based on your credentials and all this stuff, I want you to join me in this wild adventure. And that really has a powerful impact on people to just say, I've been called to this task. And so I find that also really important working with teams to seek people out and to call them specifically to the task and not just sort of put a, a vision out there and look for whoever sort of gathers around you. And then I, I also found it really helpful for my success to enter into people's worlds and their spaces and to know what's important to them and frame my issue, my work in a way that's relevant for them and not just require them to adopt my frame of thinking. So I try to do that, for example, with our IT director to enter into this world and speak about resilience as it relates to network redundancy and cybersecurity and how we use artificial intelligence to predict what the future disruption will be like. That got him excited, right? And we, we went on a conference together and we started speaking about this work and he's a champion for resilience. Um, same thing with our law enforcement, right? To enter into this challenge they have with people cycling through the system when it's clear that it's a mental health crisis and not a criminal activity. And so they become the champions. And so those are, to me, those are so critical for any kind of teamwork um, to inspire around a vision and to enter into their world and to call them specific to it. If we can finish this work and it ends with people saying, oh, we did this thing or I'm doing this resilience work and I can just sort of fade in the background. Oh, man, that's success. So we get to do that now with all these different teams. I love the challenge of making it make sense for somebody who doesn't do this work every day and to sort of walk away with them feeling like, yeah, this is this is my charge. 
I'm like, yes, excellent, excellent. Wow. (laughs) That is wonderful. I love that framing of leadership and bringing people in. Wow. So we need to wrap up this part of our conversation. I feel privileged to have you here to have this conversation and um, just to to know that there are people like you out there who are brilliant, who are passionate about the work and who are caring about these issues and going out and making, like you said, a very tangible impact in their local communities. Um, and I'm sure that spreads. So thank you so much for this. We're going to bring you back and chat about how you got to where you are, a little bit more of your Cornell background. But thank you so much for being here. Absolutely. I love talking with people about my work. And so it is really my privilege. And and thank you for the opportunity to do this. Welcome back. Welcome back. Abena, thank you so much for our last conversation. As we said, we're all ready to (laughs) jump ship and come and work for you. You're an inspiring leader. So we want to hear more about what, uh, how you got there. So I'll let Tracy begin with the questions. Thank you. We were wondering how you chose engineering as a career path. You mentioned that you thought about it since you were little. And then what brought you to Cornell specifically? I, I don't even remember how young I was when I started thinking about engineering, but I think problem solving uh, was always intriguing. Now, in, in high school and middle school, I was good in math. And so our poor, you know, high school counselors managing 3000 students like you like math. Think about engineering. Like, OK, um, my my father always encouraged it. My mom, my mom is also an accountant. And so just math and science was was fun in the house. They made it fun and they made it interesting. And they always encouraged me even as um, as a girl to pursue it. So um, I think just the encouragement, you know, from others led me to it because I, I wanted to do something with my hands and, and do something with problem solving. When it came to colleges, I looked all over the place, went to a couple hostings. Um, but honestly, the day I received my big red book advertising, promoting Cornell, I was sold. They just had me. They had me. I don't know. My favorite color was red. The pictures, everybody looked so happy on on the slope. People just schlepping along on the hill and waterfalls. I was like, this is heaven on earth, right? And um, I was lucky enough to be invited to um, a hosting program in the fall. And actually, it was gray and rainy the whole time. <laughs> But my hostess was awesome. Uh, Cornell just spoiled us that weekend as as they do and made a great impression. And so I think I may have mailed one other college application. And when it was all said and done, Cornell was just like my choice and I wasn't looking back and I still don't regret it. Um, Really loved the many options that were there so that even though I wanted to study engineering, I could still enjoy architecture courses, urban planning courses, wine courses, you know. The famous wine (laughs) course, right? Yeah. You get to take it. Exactly. (laughs) Great. I wish I could take it. Well, I am curious to hear which courses ha- made a particular impact on you or which clubs and activities, you know, what are the things you did as an undergraduate that were really leading you to this path? Uh, too many undergraduate groups. I remember um, 
National Society of Black Engineers was just a really awesome safe space, um, a place where we could all, uh, you know, pat each other on the back and also mourn bad exams and all that sort of stuff. We traveled together and got to meet other um, professional engineers around the country. And it just was, it was just awesome. Um, I co-founded a group called, um, now I think it's called Cornell's Pan-Africans. So they changed the name. They didn't even ask me. They didn't even ask me and they changed the name, but it was a coalition of Pan-African scholars back in the day and just connecting some of the um, work in justice and equity and uh, redevelopment in the U.S., but with um, African countries and African communities around the world that really face similar issues. And uh, our Christian community, I was singing, I was in a gospel choir, I was in a Bible study. I mean, all of that was just actually buffered me against the treacherous engineering courses <laughs> so that I could have a little bit of an outlet um, and not just be buried in it. I, I, I really, in hindsight, it was just so valuable to have the rigorous coursework, but to also have community completely outside of engineering to really help me frame the work that I'm doing now. I have to say so many of my engineering students are very much involved in music in dance, marching band, theater. They have nice. these whole separate lives. Yeah. Um, and they need it's that. for our sanity. Yep. yep. <laughs> I did some of the engineering stuff. I did solar decathlon. That was awesome. Um, and actually one of my favorite engineering classes, I want to say it's Professor Weber that taught it, but maybe not. Um, it was an infrastructure course. And I remember our capstone was the SimCity project. And I was like, SimCity is my favorite <laughs> game at the time. And so when he said that, I was like, oh, yeah, I'm nailing it. Um, I, that was really fun. I really love that. Well, mm. then once you got past your schooling, so to speak, uh, your formal schooling, when you first entered the job market, what was the one thing that you wish you had more of from mm. your school experience? You know, I think it's changed a little bit. So my first official full-time job was actually working at Cornell Diversity Programs in Engineering as an academic advisor. I was like, what am I doing here? This doesn't make any sense. I should be in a cubicle somewhere drawing designs. But my mentor at the time, Dianetta Jones, she's no longer there. I think she's at MIT still, um, convinced me to do it because while I was working there is when I finished my master's degree. Um, so I, out of undergrad, I worked recruiting students, advising them, helping to, them to navigate um, engineering program. And it was incredibly rewarding then. And I, but then I worked in other, you know, civil engineer construction related work. And I lamented not having some of the basics of construction. Don't hate me when I say this, but I, I felt like going through an engineering degree, you get you get more leadership and sort of strategy and, and big picture challenging questions that it's, it's, it's an elite education. I mean, I'm trying to be find the right way to say this, but, you know, it's different than what you might get at a trade school where you're like literally learning the hands on how to make this work. Um, and so I think in the beginning, I lamented not having enough of that. Um, but over time, my Cornell education has served me so well because I do think that we're training leaders in the field. You're, you're training change makers, right? Um, and taste makers, even on the non-technical world. And so 
when you're armed with that and you're starting early in your career, it could feel like you don't know the basics, but you actually have so much more to offer. And I think that's part of what has helped me move quickly through multiple sectors and find success either way. So I don't know that there's anything right now that I wish I had more of. I love the opportunity to have had flexibility in my degree program. I had an academic advisor that supported it. Um, So I could mix in urban planning courses with civil engineering. Um, I love that I was able to travel abroad, which was harder to do for engineers back then. I think we used to have two options, either an English speaking place or Germany, because who wants to do calculus in another language? But I was able to go to Greece and work on an infrastructure sort of urban planning project too. And it was probably a gamble, honestly. In hindsight, I think the advisors were probably thinking, oh no, you could try it, but good luck. And and it worked out. Um, and, and so I really cherish that about Cornell. It just kind of allowed me to experiment a little bit and still have the really solid foundation to um, to utilize for any other career. You said you did some academic advising, and I remember we worked together then. Um, But uh, thinking now about current sophomores, what might you advise them to consider as they explore career options? I would invite them to go across campus and take another course, you know, outside of their college. Uh, It's a little intimidating, but and not just the easy frou-frou courses, by the way, right? Because sometimes you need that one Uh, as a mental break, but, you know, really try something that uh, is not normal. I remember taking an organizational behavior course in ILR and I I was cynical. I'll be honest. I walked in there thinking this is not a real rigorous course of study here. What is what is this social engineering kind of thing? Uh, I loved it. And the professor was uh, an expert in her field and she gave us material that challenged us. And it was just different than the way I was thinking about some of the work. So um, even that was instructive. So I would advise, you know, students now always throw in one unlikely course that might help shape you. But I think overall, as you think about careers, it's so daunting to think, what do I want to be when I grow up? And it's not, it's never that. There's so many people I know that just don't have a career at all related to or mapped out the way they did when they were in college. But it is, a lot about finding an expertise that will bring value to the community and being open to bringing that forth in any context. It doesn't have to be your traditional context, right? It could be whatever it is, uh, whatever sector. You know, being an expert, being a subject matter expert matters. It's really important now, I think, because in the world of social media and everybody having almost an equal platform for knowledge, it is tempting to think that you're an expert just because you have a platform. Just because you can tweet it and it can go viral doesn't mean you're an expert. Um, And we really need to return back to the value of expertise, not just to say you're an expert, but to really call out innovation, to to tease it out, to do something creative. Like a pianist, they practice all day and they're expert in it, but that's what frees them to be innovative, to be creative, is because they're actually really good at playing, not because they just sat there and made up something in their mind. So... I'd encourage deep expertise, but the openness to apply that in any sector. Well, you were talking about taking, you know, one one thing each semester, right? That's that's out of the norm. I, I encourage my students to do the same. Like yeah. you need ice skating, you need pottery, you need, you know, something. But mm-hmm. 
that takes us to our next question where we were going to ask a few fun questions. And the first yeah. one is, what do you do? What do you do to balance out your day to relax or have fun, re-energize? So, okay. Well, for the last couple of years, I've been a recovering workaholic and I've been, my family has been practicing really deep Sabbath rest, which is just to take one day where we do nothing but just rest and veg out. Right. So for us, it's Friday night to Saturday. We come, we eat pizza, we eat cookies, we watch a movie, we lay on the couch, rub your belly button, whatever it is, like literally do nothing for about 24 hours. And it is so rejuvenating. I look forward to it all week and it makes Monday so much more uh, enjoyable. So deep rest is, is, has become very important to me. I picked up gardening like just before the pandemic and during, now you know, the pandemic has made us all into crazies with weird habits and hobbies that we didn't think we had, right? Um, but I picked up gardening and it was so awesome. It was so awesome. It's hard because the things don't just come out of the ground, like in the pictures. Yeah, you put things in the ground and they don't come up for years um, until you walk by one day and, you know, you just see it sprouting up and, and still is like a joy. <laughs> this discovery, you're like, oh, that was my seed. Um, so I just, I found that really um, actually grounding in helpful ways when the world kind of feels chaotic to go outside and look at life being life seasons going around like it does and plants coming up and plants dying and squirrels chasing other squirrels. And it's like, they don't have anything to worry about. So why should I? Yeah. <laughs> My squirrels have replanted my raspberry bushes quite often. They, they're growing all over the place now. Honestly, I hate squirrels. I really do. <laughs> they're like second to mosquitoes. If I can get rid of mosquitoes, I'd do that. Fun. Okay. So what's one place you go for information to stay current in your work? To the streets. Mm. Um, I kind of lurk uh, on Facebook. I'm not really active there, but I do find it instructive to know kind of various uh, voices in our community. And I make it a point to try to get out of echo chambers. So eclectic friends help me with uh, information about what's on, what's on my community's mind. I do like reading now. So I would have never admitted this as an engineer, but I just did not like reading, especially long, thick books. But again, over the last couple of years, I've really come to enjoy reading a good physical copy of a book, you know, um, and just disappearing into that and, and learning more about how the world works and just gleaning some wisdom from that. Um, so those are, those are kind of sources of general information. Right. And then we're going to wind up with this last question, which is if you were not doing this work, what you're doing right now, what would you do? Okay. I would be a farmer, but it also has to make six figures and I have to like not work as much with my hands. Is that is that possible? Yeah, totally <laughs> doable. Absolutely. We'll, we'll arrange that for you. I, I love the idea of growing food and yeah, just, but it has to make a lot of money and I can't work this hard. I, I probably need some helpers. Fair enough. Well, thank you so much for spending some of your precious time with us. And uh, I, I feel very inspired, even just about the whole, you know, resilience planning I like that framework so much. I'm probably going to walk around with that for days. So thank you for all of that. And, and the generosity of spirit that you bring to your, your engineering, your planning work, your work with your teams. Um, I couldn't think of a better 
conversation I wanted to have today. So thank you for that. Oh, thank you. Thank you so much. That's really sweet. And uh, I'm blessed by it. So you all have done me a, a great favor and given me a gift as well. Thank you. I hope that you have really wonderful conversations with your other guests. Um, I'm looking forward to hearing more about what my colleagues are doing around the world. Excellent. I look forward to it as well. Thank you so much. This is a wonderful conversation. This is inspiring work. No squirrels or mosquitoes were harmed in the recording of this podcast, <laughs> though I thought long and hard about it. <laughs> Join us for the next episode where we will be celebrating excellence and innovation among engineers whose impact contributes to a healthier, more equitable, and more sustainable world. 